Hello again, welcome back to Fire and Nun Film, and Merry Christmas. This is part two of our top ten musicals list, so let's get right back into the chat. So, before we kick off with numbers five to one of our lists, I'm going to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, because today, is, as you know, is Christmas Day. Obviously. Merry Christmas, everyone! Feliz Navidad. <laughs> Obviously, it's Christmas Day. It's definitely not October. We haven't prepped. We're doing this live. We're not with our families now. Yeah. We're coming to you live through iTunes. Uh, because someone's, we have no one who loves us. Someone's not going to understand it and go, what kind of sad act are you of releasing a podcast on Christmas Day? We're lonely, stop judging us. It's just an automated thing. <laughs> okay. We live in our school. Yeah. <laughs> We're not allowed to leave, send help. Mm-hmm. We've and done Turkey. Nothing. We've done nothing since Monday. Since the last time that we did, you know, numbers 10 to 6, we've now done nothing in between. We've just been waiting for today. And finally, tell you what our yeah. number one music yeah. is. Yeah, the master came and put coins in our operating slots, so now we can move again. Now we can do something. Finally, <laughs> okay. Uh, so we're going to kick off with number five. I'm going to kick us off with number five. Now, this is the film that I think Holly has a different version of on her list, um, and this is from 2018, and this is A Star Is Born, directed by Bradley Cooper. Now. This is Bradley Cooper's directorial debut. It stars him and Lady Gaga, as well as a couple of other people in uh, the supporting cast, so Dave Chappelle, Andrew Dice Clay, and Sam Elliott. Uh, It is the third remake of the original 1937 film after the 1954 musical and the 1976 musical. And apparently, this was in development for a very, very long time. It began in 2011 with Clint Eastwood attached to direct and Beyonce to star. And then it went through various incarnations, including Christian Bale, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lopez, Will Smith, and Tom Cruise. Finally, it kind of landed with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. I said this at the time, and I, I, I'm, this is the, the hill that I'm going to die on. I cannot fault Bradley Cooper's determination and effort that he put into this film. He produced it, he wrote it, he directed it, he acts in it, he sings in it, he wrote the songs for it. Did he get anything at the Oscars? Did he naff? He got nothing, the poor sod. When I, again, when I came out of it, I said, just got out of A Star Is Born, loved the performance scenes, both Gaga and Cooper were solid and the soundtrack is on point. Gaga's final performance, which is I'll Never Love Again, is going to define her as an actress and is outstanding. And I stand by that. I think the soundtrack is great. I really like um, Bradley Cooper's Jackson main performances of like Black Eyes, Alibi, Obviously, Shallow is the big one that kind of came out of it and is, is a good enough song anyway. But I absolutely think that the end, the final performance of I'll Never Love Again is such an I, already iconic, I think, ballad that I think is, is, it's probably going to get killed when we get back to having X Factor as, as on often as it used to, when everyone's going to sing it and one year it's going to end up as the bloody single that they release. But I just think it's one of them kind of like all power moments of an emotional moments, actually, that hooks the end of that film. I thought this was really good. I, I didn't expect much from it. I went to go and see it because I just thought it's going to be a big Oscar buzzy contender thing. And I think it was that perfect combination of I forgot that it was Lady Gaga after a while. I was worried that she was going to kind of overdo it and be a bit more hammy and it be an obvious thing. So I was, I was happy that she did as well in it as she, as she did. Again, I cannot fault, fault Bradley Cooper's determination to get this off the ground, get it done. And I'm, I 
generally do feel sorry for him that he's not kind of got any awards, accolades or anything like that from it. And again, I think it's a good soundtrack. I don't know what more to say. I really enjoyed this. I've not seen any of the others. I don't know if I want to go back and see any of the others. The kind of, the thing that, that took it from me is when Mark Kermode reviewed it, he said, well, it's a star is born, so you know how it's going to end. I didn't know how it was going to end. So it was a surprise to me. Um, when I finally got around to showing it Amy, because I didn't go to the cinema with her, I'd already told her how it ended. And she said, if, if, had you not told me, I probably would have cried, is what she said. So I can totally get that. I think, yeah. Um, I'm not too much of a fan of when you start getting, really similar to La La Land, actually, when you get the kind of, this music is the devil subplot of Ali's now sold out and she's going into pop. And to be fair, I'm not a fan of that music anyway. So that's the kind of sound, the half of the soundtrack that I don't listen to. Everything before it and the kind of stuff they do together, absolutely fine. But yeah, I enjoy this one. That's my number five. That's A Star Is Born. Uh, Holly, your number five then. Uh, my number five is probably my guiltiest pleasure. I'm looking at the list. No, my number, no, my number four. No, my number one. Okay, this half of my list is all my guilty pleasures now. And I stand by them. My number five is Thoroughly Modern Millie, um, which is not a great film at all. It's from uh, 1967, uh, directed by um, George Roy Hill, um, who went on to direct Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and a number of other very highly acclaimed um, films. Thoroughly Modern Millie, when it came out, was... He, he got a, a fairly good critical reception, but it's certainly gone down in people's estimation, down on lists of, of good musicals. Um, but I, I love it so much. It's so childish and silly, but buoyed up by the fact that everyone in the cast is completely in on the joke. So the main character is Julie Andrews, who I adore. She can do anything. I don't care. She could be in absolutely anything and she would make it better um and it's the story of millie played by uh, julie andrews who is a young woman in new york she's supposed to be american she's supposed to be from the american south and she's got julie andrews's plummy english accent it's ridiculous um who is trying to make her way in 1920s new york by being a modern so she wants to get a job she wants to become a stenographer but she wants to marry her boss. And um, this is the dream that she has. Um, and this goes awry completely when uh, she kind of falls for a penniless um, paperclip salesman um, and then gets involved in a number of capers involving breaking up a sex trafficking ring. Um, that's the main one. Um, breaking into a fireworks factory, um, of preventing a, a murder, preventing a kid, kidnapping, um, going to this crazy jazz singer's um, mansion and stopping a gold digger from marrying her fiance. It's ridiculous, but it's just fun from beginning to end. Most of the songs happen inside the characters' heads as opposed to uh, choreographed set pieces um, and I really like that it's really tongue-in-cheek there are a lot of 
um, comedy elements nodding to the 1920s. They have title cards whenever um, Millie is thinking something a bit outrageous. Um, there's, a, there's a running joke that in the 1920s, the silhouette was to be flat-chested and Millie isn't. So every time she comes up against someone who um, looks really good in their dress and their beads hang straight, she looks down and her beads are like, halfway up here over one boob like this and you get a title card where she's like really annoyed about this um and, and it's that level of silliness all the way through which i really like but also just a few things which i find a bit more empowering and again i don't want to create feminist messages where there definitely aren't any but the the central love story is actually quite uh realistic in that the couple don't fall in love with each other at first sight. They go on a date and they kind of make out in the back of his car. And then she decides he's a bit of a loser. So she tries to brush him off and he keeps waiting for her outside work. And she's a bit annoyed about it. And it all feels quite realistic for a film in the, from the 1960s, which is set in the 1920s. Um, and I really like that. So it's fun and it's silly and it's nostalgic. And I don't think I'd recommend someone go to it if they don't already love the genre and they don't already love Julie Andrews. But if you do and you haven't heard of this one, then, then look for it. Um, it. Caveat, it has some very, very dated racial politics, particularly the, um, the portrayal of, of Chinese Americans is, is pretty... It's on a level with Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's oh, pretty wow. Cool. <laughs> so um, that is a very big caveat. Um, but a product of its time, which is a horrible excuse to give. But... Sounds like another shenanigans film for you. It's very the... much a shenanigans Proper film. caper. The theme. <laughs> okay. Um, Ollie, you're number five. Hey, we're getting some crossover. I oh. think, is, have we had crossover before? I don't no, think we have First example, Little Shop, Little Shop Horrors. This was one of the ones that pushed out Rent in Greece. This was the last one that made it onto my list because I saw as I was renting my number four to watch that because I knew it needed to make it on the list, but I thought I've never actually seen it even though I know I love it. So I need to watch it to confirm how much I love it and actually love it more. But it was like, oh, you've watched this. Maybe you'd like to watch this. And I recognize, I saw Rick Moranis looking a bit perturbed and plant tentacles kind of waving around behind him and thought, how the hell have I not put that on? Because it's the maestros at work. It's Menken and Ashman at their, this is, this is why they were brought in to fix Disney. And I was in bits uh, before, for those um, who can't see and, can't hear because I made sure I muted myself. When Holly mentioned that the um, <laughs> the working title for Part of Your World was somewhere that's dry, I nearly died because that's hysterical. Um, I think every single performance in this is just quality. You forget, you, you don't realise just how good a singer Rick Moranis is. It's really disconcerting when you see this guy that you know from... Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Ghostbusters. And, you know, he's always kind of slouched over and he's sticking his neck out a, cer out a certain way. And then he just powers out this gorgeous lead musical theatre voice. It's like, where's that come from, Seymour? 
that's incredible. Um, and somewhere that's green is hysterical as well. I think it, that's my favourite part of this being because it's not your. It almost feels um, countercultural in that if this had come out after after all of the big hits from Disney, uh, somewhere that's green would seem like a parody of the I Want song because. It, it's take it's it's making real it's taking fun of itself effectively it's like when we're watching tv on a big enormous 12 inch screen and it just cuts to this tiny screen that they're all sat in front of and it does that disney thing where they've got two kids one son one daughter the son looks exactly like seymour and the daughter looks exactly like audrey um i do love you'll be a dentist I think again because it subverts it because you just hear about Orin again and again and you see Audrey with these bruises and she mentions about handcuffs. It's like, oh, okay. And it's very apparent that he's not a good person. And then you get the lead and he comes in his leather jacket, he's riding his Harley. And then at the right moment is, you'll be a dentist. And he takes off his leather jacket and you see his dentist's outfit and he's like, that makes perfect sense. It explains where dentists come from. But as much as I love Steve Martin, the star of the show is Audrey too. It's the plant. As soon as that plant gains sentience and starts singing in this deep, soulful voice. Oh, his voice it's is phenomenal. Absolutely unreal. It's a proper bucket list role for me, is Audrey too. Uh, I would, I'd kill to portray Audrey too, because I, I and you just, do a feed feed me Seymour for us. We'll feed. be we'll we'll judge. Okay, feed me, I'll feed me Seymour. Just yeah, it's got to be like I'd love to do it because and as well because it's just a voice performance. I'm not on because when my director's notes tend to be oh you're moving a bit weird you could move bigger whereas if i'm just giving a vocal performance a la robin williams i can look like a moron backstage all i want as long as the voice is there but feed me is incredible uh, i can't remember the title of the song during that final confrontation where seymour's trying to kill audrey two off but that's incredible uh, bad, bad mad bads plant from outer space or yeah mad bad plant from outer space that's it and there's even the um, the bass line that plays when Mushnik has got what is like trying to bring Seymour to task after I mean not trying to spot but there's there's this like there's just this really quiet bass line that plays and it's really foreboding. Mean green mother from outer space. Mean green mother from outer space. That's it. But this is and you just hear the um, the core the chorus girl. Uh, they've got an actual name. I forget the character's name. But they're just singing supper, and you just got this bass line going underneath it as seem as the tension's building and like Mushnik's backing away towards Audrey too, and you know Audrey two's going to do something mischievous. Um, but that alternate ending, which is more in line with the original ending of the musical, as you said, like. Um, it is it is that nihilistic ending, and it ends with I think it ends with a shot of Audrey two cackling whilst grabbing onto the Statue of Liberty, having been transported around um, at Skid Row and out into the bigger city on top of a moving like L train, and like there's little plants everywhere. It's just that that fusion of genre like that kind of science b movie in musical format where the guy the guys whose mantra i 
fully subscribe to of every song must be informative of the story or of the characters and their motivations. Um, or, you know, even, even the funny numbers, like you'll be a dentist, it gives you a big insight into Warren and why he is the way he is. And it, for such a horrible character, it makes him one of the funnier elements of the film. And even beyond that, the little things like everybody acts a bit off. So Audrey's like, oh, Seymour, why don't you tell Mr. Mushnick about that strange and unusual plant? And Mushnick's not interested. And then this random guy comes in. It's like, pardon me. I couldn't help but notice that strange and unusual plant in the window there. And then he buys $100 worth of roses since he's that like, it's, it's such an out there musical and... I, I can't wait because I think this is one that the company I'm with want to do again. I, I can't wait to do this at some point. And the film, you know, with Frank Oz's direction and his stage management, and it's just absolutely incredible. And to reiterate, Adam, you like forget everything else. If you've not seen my number one, and, and, but I think you've seen every, you, there's a good chance you'll have seen everything I talk about. I would push, since me and Holly have both suggested this one, if you're only allowed to watch one film that we have suggested between us, it needs to be this, because you would absolutely love it. It's so up your... Bill Murray steals the show, and he's in it for all of one scene. Bill Murray's incredible. Uh, that's, John, that's just Bill Murray, though, right? Yeah. Is that all the time? Yeah, it's... I, I don't want to spoil how he comes into the content, because he's not in the stage show. He's just for the film. He's not in the stage show at all. So it's almost like Bill Murray auditioned for a different character and Frank Oz went, well, you've not got any of these, but, uh, you know, you, you riff that idea there and that seems really funny, so why don't we just do that? And they kept it in the... And it's, it's, his scene is so funny. But you, you, you'd love it. The music, the, you're talking about soundtracks being on repeat. That this, one, this one is so catchy. All right, I'll watch it. Yeah. I mean, most of the stuff you've just said completely went over my head. I'd zoned out for a little bit then. I thought, I'm just going to let you two go with it. and then Because <laughs> I, I know or I feel like my number four is either as equally as weird, and I doubt either of you have seen it, so then that'll put it on your list. Um, but it's not my turn yet. Uh, Holly, if you want to give us your number four. I've spoken about this one before, so I'm very sorry. My number four is Lagan, Once Upon a Time in India. Um, this was my, my number one on my foreign films list in a podcast we did ages and ages and ages ago. Um, it's the only Bollywood film on my list, um, and it is spectacular. Uh, it's from uh, 2001, directed by Ashutosh Gowarika. How is long is it again? Three hours and 45 minutes. Every single second is worth it. <laughs> it feels like half an hour. It's that good. Um, the music's by A.R. Rachman, who is a Bollywood legend, like a Bollywood god. He is, he is Bollywood. And he wrote the music, and it is fantastic. Um, my favourite song um, is Ganam Ganam, which is... Uh, the first song in the film and because it's so long the first song doesn't come up until 30 minutes in um yeah <laughs> but it, it it's fantastic uh, the the premise of the film 
which went through last time, which is utterly ridiculous, is that we are in India during the height of the Raj. Um, there is a small village which is suffering under both British rule and uh, drought. So they are unable to pay the Lagan of the title. The Lagan is a agricultural tax. So they go to the um, the um, Maharaja and they go to the British captain and they ask if they can have an extension to wait until the rains come until they pay their agricultural tax because they don't have enough crops to survive um, and pay the tax and um, they say no um, but then challenge the villagers to play the British officers in cricket and if the um, Indian village can make a team that can beat the British officers, then they won't have to pay the Lagan for three years. If the British officers win, they will have to pay triple the Lagan. Um, and just from that description, you obviously know exactly what's going to happen. It hits all the beats of a classic underdog sports story, but is in the framework of this amazing sweeping Bollywood epic musical. And I am here for it. It is wonderful. And this first song, Ganam Ganam, is uh, al almost the entire film is in Hindi. There are a, a few of the British officers who speak a little in English, but then also in Hindi and one terrible song in English. But this first song's in Hindi and it's about uh them them thinking that the rains are, are coming and i think when you think of bollywood and bollywood numbers you think of something very highly choreographed and colorful um and this one is much more um natural naturalistic there's no big choreographed um dance it's obviously chore choreographed beautifully into within an inch of its life but it's all the the villagers just dancing with joy at the sight of clouds um, and singing on the rooftops of their huts or the children running around or the old people getting up with their canes and just coming and pointing at the sky. And it's really beautiful. The singing is gorgeous. Um, the main uh, two actors, Amir Khan and Gracie Singh, don't do their own singing. It's, it's very much... Uh, a trope of Bollywoods that all of the singing is dubbed, but their voice actors um, for the singing parts are fantastic. I was trying to look up the name of Gracie Singh's um, voice double because her her parts in all of the songs, but especially Ganam Ganam, is beautiful. Um, it's obviously a lot of time to invest in a film when it's three hours, 45 minutes. I've seen it twice. Both times I just sat there with a grin plastered on my face from minute one to minute whatever, 200 and blah, 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 blah. Um, it's, it's wonderful and, and cheesy and so, so sweet and joyful. Um, and the music is great. I think I've seen a making of thing of that. Like as soon as you talked about it being a challenge to a game of cricket, that was the bit where I was like, hang on, I swear that, because, and I remember like the guy who's like the main, the, the face of I'm the antagonist. Here. No, the guy who's the oh. face of the antagonist. Yeah, yeah. He was giving an interview where, and he fully admitted that like all the Indian actors, that, you know, they were quite real, you know, quite realistically batting out and hitting it. And then every time they had to do it to him, they had to cut to him hitting a really easy ball 
Um, but isn't there a scene, because the one, that if, if I'm thinking the right film, there's a really touching little, because doesn't it deal with the caste system? That was yes, it does. Um, so so there's, um, there's someone who, I think, are they called the untouchables, the lowest caste? Mm -hmm. And the ball goes out to him and he goes and asks him for the ball and he throws it, putting a bit of spin on it. Yeah. And it goes completely past him and the guy's like, how did you do that? He's got a broken hand and he manages to spin bowl mm. and none of the others have managed to do it. So then he's allowed into the, into the team. It's, it, it, the main character in this film is a proper kind of male Mary Sue. Like he yes, solves he every everything. problem in India. Like he gets rid of the Raj, he stops the caste system, he, very, <laughs> he wants gender equality, he um, protects uh, religious values, he protects vegetarianism. At one point, the British uh, officer is trying to go hunting for deer and he runs around in the woods throwing pebbles at the deer to make them run off just before the officer takes the shot ah, like, ah, it's, ah. it's so ridiculous he make... Amir Khan is so charismatic that you're uh, just like yes does he make peace I with Pakistan as well <laughs> does he make peace with Pakistan as well he sounds like a right pre-annexation pre Fair enough. I bet he would have done if he was still around. Yeah, I'm sure he has in subsequent yeah. <laughs> I don't even understand how that plot can go for three hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> Neither can I. Like, Adam, it is so good. I mean, that, that song is like the introduction song. So that whole first thing. Half an hour in the film. It's just people chewing scenery and it is good. Like if it wasn't Bollywood, you'd be you'd be forgiven for going into that and not thinking it was a musical, and then thirty minutes in, you just all get of a sudden there's a genre switch. <laughs> yeah, hit like, with a wall of noise. It's no, like, I think what? I think you're well aware that it's a very cheesy Bollywood movie right from the start. The I mean, I was going to say, no can you sing along to the songs? But then I remembered that like my mum used to sing along to Il Devo in Italian. So yeah, of course you can. I, 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 say, I sang along with the songs while they're on. I'm not going to do that on a <laughs> podcast, obviously, because I'm not singing in Hindi. I'm just making random noises that I think make sense in the song. But they're very, they're very hummable songs, for sure. Apart from the English language one, which is cringe personified. The poor actress who had to sing it and dance to it. I mean... I hope wow. she earned a lot of money for that part because you couldn't pay me anything to, to do that. Oh, dear. Right. Now, we're getting varied, at least. Ollie, number, two, number four? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was one that occurred to me a bit later. I think this pushed off Rent initially, and this was one that I had never seen up until the weekend just gone. Uh, but I knew as soon as I realised, I remembered its existence, that it had to go on there. And if anything, watching it reaffirmed how, like, I actually loved this way more than I thought I did. And it is Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, from the mind of Richard O'Brien. Um, we were talking uh, a couple of, you know, me and Holly have talked already about how much we love a B-movie um, uh, kind of sci-fi musical. This is the epitome of that to the point where the, like at least in Little Shop of Horrors, there is a plot that you can follow. The plot in Rocky Horror Picture Show is just nonsense. And you don't care the entire time you're watching it because it is just the most fun thing. And like getting the, ser the more serious side of it out of the way quicker, it, it, it really is 
quite a fascinating insight into Richard O'Brien's mind because he has come out in uh, subsequent years and taught way ahead of the time and way ahead of the curve of it, you know, kind of melding with, you know, the zeitgeist at the time. He talks about being intersex effectively and feeling like he's, you know, there, there's a spectrum of gender and, you know, most, you know, most people are kind of comfortable one side or the other. They're comfortable as a hundred percent male or a hundred percent female. And I find myself somewhere in between and kind of clarifying that later saying he feels about 70% male and 30% female. And you can see a lot of this in Rocky Horror Picture Show and Rocky Horror Show, which was the stage show that they filmed to get this. And it is, there is this, there's this very obvious undertone throughout the whole musical of sexual liberation and kind of doing, you know, just you doing you, you doing what makes you happy. It starts off with this quite typically concert, not, not outwardly spoken conservative couple, but you're very typical, you know, they look like God fearing church going American couple who the very first time we meet them, they're proclaiming, claiming their love for each other and they're dressed in a very dowdy fashion and it's just oh brad oh janet and they're 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 portrayed so over the toply that it's clearly deliberate acting choice because it is your homage to a b-movie and then throughout the whole thing they have preconceptions kind of thrown against like this was a film in the 70s that yes everything was happening behind you know all the particularly raunchy scenes were happening behind the sheet so you could only see silhouettes but you had um you know both of that married couple um in quite intimate p- uh, positions with dr frankenfurter who i need to make some time for and just clear my mind because dr frankenfurter this is the, this is the role that gave us tim curry and boy did he announce himself to the world because Rocky Horror Picture Show is full of some absolute bangers. Meatloaf singing Hot Patootie. The Time Warp is one of the most iconic songs ever. And that's probably the best song from this because it's kind of transcended Rocky Horror and it's become something that you play on its own at parties and everyone knows the dance and joins along. But Tim Curry's introduction, when he comes down in that lift and then just belts into Sweet Transvestite, wow. What a number, what a performance from Tim Curry. If I had the physique for it, I'd be going for Dr. Frankenfurter because, oh my God, it looks like so much fun. Just everything, it's incredibly cheesy and it's, it's incredibly, che- I, don't, I wouldn't say it's in poor taste, a lot of this reason, but it's in very cheap taste and it knows how cheap it's being and it knows how showy, but it's, it was so much fun from start to finish. Every single song being this kind of rock ballad, being incredible. Tim, and like I said, Tim Curry. This is, the, this is what gave us Tim Curry and the joy that he has given us since. Because when I, I referred to it earlier, when you've got actors, they might not have the best acting range necessarily, but they're having so much fun with everything they're doing, that you can't help but love them. And that's Tim Curry. Tim Curry, you could argue, is quite a one-note actor, but he has so much fun in every single thing he does. That note is so loud, though. That note is the loudest note imaginable, and it's it's screaming, come here and listen to me. It's, 
Frankenfurter, yeah, Frankenfurter is such an iconic part of musical theatre history, and it started with Tim Curry, and it did the thing that I know Adam likes, where they do a film version of an existing stage musical, where they just got a lot of the original cast. It wasn't all of them, unfortunately. I think Susan Sarandon took over. She surprised me with how she sang, actually, because Janet's got some hard vocal lines, and she sounds a bit weak in parts, but I think that's meant to be the point of Janet. And it's just... It's such a, a mind crush, the entire experience. And you come out of it at the end just knackered, just thinking, wow, that was so much fun. Um, it's bad, but it's, it's, it's the definition of it's so, it's so bad. It's amazing. It's, just, it's, just, it's, it's the perfect car crash of a musical. I absolutely, I loved it more than I thought I would when I just knew about the soundtrack and knew about the songs like watching it and how cheesy and b-movie it was i loved every second of it you know what i just don't get it <sighs> i just don't get it i've watched it and i just yeah i just don't get it fine <laughs> i don't think there's yeah. meant to, like i said there's not me- there's not meant to be much of a point you just take this very secure middle american couple and just no, it, yeah. it wasn't like I was sat there wondering what is this film about. I was just like, I don't, it, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't for me. Mm. And I remember when I, I was in university and one of the lecturers lent it to me on DVD because I said that I'd not seen it. And I watched it and I gave it a back and she went, oh, what did you think? And she's like a big fan. She'd been to cinema screenings, live theatre screenings where they were throwing rice and they were all dressed up and all that kind of stuff. So oh, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, I didn't like it. She went, you're entitled to your opinion. And then just... What do <laughs> I, um, yeah. it's kind of my, that is kind of my take on it, if I'm honest. Pretty, like, pretty much it, yeah. Uh, like, I th- like, yeah. I do agree. It hasn't made my list. I, as a kind of a B-movie horror musical, I prefer Little Shop. Mm. But I, I do like Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I like it as a musical to see on stage as well. Maybe a little bit more. Although Tim Curry is obviously... The wonderful and worth watching just to see his performance. I really enjoyed seeing it on the stage. I'd love to. I would love to see this on stage because I I love the campiness behind it. The fact that it, it like usually in musicals, the whole point is that you sit there and you watch it, and this is a musical that wants audience participation. There was it, loads. There yeah, was loads of audience participation. There, yeah, there was no fourth wall allowed. If you're doing Rocky Horror Picture Show. If you're, if you're doing Rocky Horror Show, you're not allowed to have a fourth wall there. And it's really sad because Richard O'Brien is a right stingy guy with the rights to this. There, there never has been, nor will there ever be, anybody other than a professional company allowed to do this. It's pretty much stipulated in black and white that this will never be made available for amateur dramatics groups. Yeah. Even, even though it's one of the easiest ones, like... It, if it looks cheap, that's kind of the point. Absolutely. And it's, I, I guess the argument is that it will just make money forever because those, those, there's always going to be an audience for people who want to see it because I certainly want to see it live at some point. Um, but I'd love to be in it. And it's, I, I, it's just such a sh- I, I'm realistically, unless some massive career shift happens, I'm never going to be in Rocky Horror Show. Um, the way to get around that is that the story really doesn't matter. It's about the songs. Yeah. So I've seen 
amateur dramatic performances of it, but at the film screenings. Yes. You go to see the film, but then there are people in the costumes and co who come on and perform the songs. I'd be, pun I'd be punching people out to do Sweet Transvestite. <laughs> I'd be punching people out. <laughs> it's absolutely going to happen. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> fine. I feel like now I'm going to latch on to this kind of B-movie horror thing with my number four pick. Now, I don't think either of you have seen it. You might have heard it. It was released in 2008, and it's called Repo the Genetic Opera. Now, it is essentially a horror rock opera. And basically, the kind of plotline of it is, a worldwide, a worldwide epidemic encourages a biotech company to launch organ financing, similar to how you would get a car loan. But if they repossess you, they repossess your organs. At then which point, it's set in 2000, it's 2056 in the not-so-distant future, um, it's devastated the planet because everyone's taking out these loans on nice new organs and nice new faces and limbs and prosthetic things and kind of like, you know, upgrades, but then you can't pay them back. So then the night surgeon will come and repossess your organs. Um, it's, it's done by a guy called Darren Lynn Bouseman who directed Saw 2, 3 and 4. And I was familiar with Darren Bouseman and his work through the Saw films. So I thought, you know what, I'll give this one a go. I watched it and I just remember thinking at the time, what the bleeding hell is this? But it has some fantastic songs in it and it's got actually quite a good cast. Um, Anthony Stewart Head, if that's the right way that I'm using, the guy from Buffy, he's in it as the night surgeon. Um, Alexa Vega from Spy Kids is in it as well. Uh, Paris Hilton, of all people, is in it and her face falls off towards the end. If ever you want a reason to watch a film because she keeps getting extra things put onto her and then she's singing towards the end and her face just drops off um this ended up as well on my university module of the body which is something that we looked at we looked at things like the machinist and a really good foreign language film called tattoo which was about a guy who killed people and just basically skinned the bodies if they had tattoos and things like that um and this was because we were just looking at like prosthetics and all that kind of stuff um I think it should have more of a cult following. It has got a little bit of a cult following. Um, there's a character in it called the Gravedigger who is fantastically charismatic and iconic. And it was speaking specifically about songs from the films. Um, so Night Surgeon is one that I've mentioned before. Chase the Morning, which has uh, Sarah Brightman, the opera singer, in the film and singing that song as well. Um, one called The Opera Tonight, which is the kind of like, one one day more, if you will, from Les Mis is, is, is this version, you know, is Repo's uh, at the opera tonight. And then a really good one by the gravedigger called Zydre Anatomy, which, again, it's, it's proper... They call it a rock opera. There are some elements of an opera to it, but then at the same time, it's just pure musical. And there's so many songs and there's so many kind of just, like, different um, genre inflections to it. And it is essentially a horror rock opera and if you're into what from sounds of it, Little Shop of Horror, and I would even say Rocky Horror, I'd check this out. That sounds unbelievable. It's so good. It's, send me send me a link to I'll that immediately because yeah. that sounds right up my street. What I'll do, I'll post the I'll post the trailer in the in the chat that we're in, mm. and then you can kind of go from there. Yeah. But yeah, it's insane. 
That's that. That sounds so good. I, like <laughs> the director of Saw created a musical. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Oh it's great. God. Could could it be, could you see it being a stage show feasibly? Well, it used to be. This is the thing. So I really, who did the music? I think it's called Terence. It's it's got a Z at the front, but I'm sure you pronounce it like Zen Dutch or something like that. Mm. He wrote the music and kind of put the stage show together. Darren Bouseman either just went to see it or was somehow involved in it in some production. And then once he'd got his foot in with Lionsgate and made on better space it a ton of money doing Saw, they then let him do Repo. And he went and did that. And he had a really small release. But, I mean, I've got it on Blu-ray, so you can get it, you know, around and stuff like that. Loved it. It's great. That sounds so good. Uh, <laughs> right. Into number threes. Well, I post this trailer in our chat. Uh, <laughs> Ollie, give us your number three. Uh, this bad boy has been mentioned before. I think this was also in my Christmas top ten. Uh, it's Die Hard, the musical now. It's... Uh... <laughs> you had me it's... then. You actually had me then. I thought, sod off. You're not having that. Absolute joke. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Loving it. <laughs> it is Muppets Christmas Carol. So, hopefully, you count that as a mu- Muppets Christmas Carol. I talked about this a bit um, in the Christmas episode, and th- there's not that many songs in this. I don't know if, uh, you know, there might be some people who would argue it's not, although, like, the songs are doing everything that you would do in a musical. And it's weird because Christmas Carol does have its own separate stage musical version that I've seen with Shane Ritchie playing Scrooge. He did a really good job, funnily enough. Um, But the songs in um, Muppets Christmas Carol are as heartwarming as the film itself. This is, I think I put this at number two in my Christmas films, and I think Adam would have preferred me to put this at number one, because out of what he actually views as proper Christmas films (laughs) in my list, um then this would have this would have been it it's just this is my christmas tradition out of any christmas film this is it and the musical numbers just you find it hard to to suggest that someone like charles dickens could have their story effectively added to it later on and the muppets managed to find a way to do that by kind of pointing out some of the some of the silliness that might be in there like when rizzo starts uh, no, sorry, when Gonzo starts reading the opening chapter of the book in his opening narration and Rizzo's looking at him like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, I'm, I'm telling the story. All right, well, why are you talking different? I'm, I'm setting the tone. Shut up. Um, and then the songs come in. The first song that you hear is Scrooge and it's this foreboding number and you've got Scrooge walking through the streets completely shrouded in shadow and everyone is talking about what a vile person he is. And then it culminates every day, in every way. Scrooge is getting worse. And he turns around and you've got Michael Caine staring down the camera. And I've said it before, this is Michael Caine's best performance. By a long shot, there's nothing that comes close to this. He's the best Scrooge. You can take your Alistair Sim and you can shove it. Just because he was the first does not mean he's the best. Michael Caine had to, had to portray a character, a classic literary character, such as Scrooge, against felt puppets. He did not portray this against human beings. He portrayed it against a green felt frog. 
and a felt pig with with curly blonde hair and a rat and whatever whatever the hell Gonzo's supposed to be. And he treats that role with such dignity the entire time. And you know what? The little singing bit he does at the end is a bit ropey because Michael Caine's not a singer. I don't care. It's just so heartfelt. And probably the best song overall, It Feels Like Christmas, as sung by the ghost of Christmas Present. Because it's the main theme that plays as you so it just starts up as in the singing by the street corner choir. It's getting home and sitting warm by the fire. Just that feat, that's Christmas. That is the most Christmassy song I can imagine. And for a musical to evoke Christmas in such such a strong way for me, I I had to put it in my top ten. And that's why. It wasn't originally my top two, and I'll discuss with my number two how I did have to put it down because I was remote. But this was initially my top two for this list, as well as my Christmas one, because it just hits me straight in the nostalgia and straight in the feels because the music is that incredible. So just to reference the prank that you just did, I generally had a second where I thought... Did it? Did they do Die Hard as a musical? <laughs> I gen, I was convinced. I, I, no, you just. I'd love to see Die Hard the musical where they awkwardly put lyrics. What is it? Uh, Beethoven's Fifth, you where they awkwardly put some. Me, <laughs> Absolute mockery! Right. Ooh. My number three is a film that Ollie has already mentioned, and one that I've said that is probably going to come back up again, and it is. It's Rocket Man from 2019. I think it's fantastic. Um, I've kind of always been a kind of low-key fan of Elton John's music over the years, and this kind of just totally just threw it all up in the air for me. I had a really good half term last year, where on the Friday. And I'd said it was a really good halftime. I now can't remember what I did. No, I can't. Right. On the Friday, I went to go and see Hugh Jackman in concert, right? On the Saturday, I went to go and watch wrestling. On the Sunday, I went to go and see Michael Booboy. And then on the Monday, we went to go and watch Rocketman in the cinema. That was the perfect start to a half term for me. And just to go back to the Hugh Jackman thing, I would pay good money for Taron Egerton to do a tour where he's just singing the songs of Elton John because yes. I think he has such a nice tone to his voice. And I kind of, I'd latched onto it a little bit from Sing when he was doing I'm Still Standing. And now that he's done all of them, it's like, fine, you can do this. I'd happily just listen to the Rocketman soundtrack rather than Elton John singing it, but it's quite nice to have both anyway. Um, so I think just to not go too much, because Ollie mentioned a lot of stuff before, it's not just about the music, it's about Elton John's life, the kind of ups and downs of his life, his relationship with his parents, his dad is despicable, his mum isn't very much of a nice person anyway, either, um, his sexuality, that kind of entrapment relationship that he has with um, John Reed, the manager, and weirdly how he came up in Bohemian Rhapsody and in um, Rocket Man, um, it is inevitably going to end up as a stage musical, no doubt. Because I cannot wait for that. There was which one is it? Were he has the overdose, and there's a point where people are kind of just lifting him up and passing him over to somebody else. Isn't that and Rocket Man? It might be Rocket Man. I think it is Rocket Man. Yeah, that was the I one just I thought I can, I can see this on stage. I can see this like being acted out on stage. Um, 
some selections from me for songs then. Um, Crocodile Rock, I, I really like that sequence in it where they all kind of just float up. And um, Honky Cat, which is a f- song that I was never really too fussed about. But actually, I like the way that they did it in the film. Obviously, Rocket Man, I'm Still Standing. And then the song that won the Oscar, which is I'm Gonna Love Me Again, which is the duet between Taron Edgerton and Elton John. Because I think together, they both play off each other's voices perfectly. Um, I'm not going to go too much more into it. Ollie already did that a little bit before. We like it. It's good. Holly, if you've not seen it, that would be one for your list, as I'll go and do Little Shop of Horrors. Um, But yeah, that's my number three. That's Rocket Man. So Holly, you're number three. We're in super classic territory now, so it doesn't need an awful lot of analysis, I don't think. Um, Wizard of Oz, uh, 1939, uh, directed by Victor Fleming. Uh, It's, you know, everyone knows the story of The Wizard of Oz. Everyone knows how beautiful and uplifting the score is. um, How iconic the story is. Um, I, I watched a really great video essay and I can't remember who it was by now, but they were talking about Star Wars and how Star Wars is um, uh, so uh, related to The Wizard of Oz and the story of The Wizard of Oz. And that was really, really interesting and how that um, coming of age story has has um, seeped into film after it was so um, prominent in The Wizard of Oz and so popular. Um, yeah, and my favorite song is probably um, If I Only Had a Brain, which I know is repeated and comes up over and over again, but the Scarecrow was always my my favourite character as a child. I love the Scarecrow so much. Um, I'm sure I don't need to tell people the story. Classic coming-of-age story of the girl wishing that she was somewhere else, going somewhere else, realising that's not home, getting back and appreciating what she had. Um, Classic, timeless, beautiful, perfect. Let's move on. Are you as I was going to say afraid? I wasn't a fan of uh, Return to Oz because I love Return me. to Oz. I, I like Return to Oz. I it's you know no, it doesn't get anywhere near Wizard yeah. of Oz for me, but I enjoyed it. The role was good. The life out of me. They were scary. Yeah. yeah. The I, I no, I think I recognised that just being up at the top of a set of stairs meant they couldn't get anywhere near me. See, I don't know. There was just something... I mean, I was young when I watched it. I was more terrified by that witch. I didn't like the rock face. Yeah, the oh, kid, yeah. yeah. More and yeah. more realistic. That freaked me out. Yeah, yeah. that was... It was yeah, definitely it, a darker version. Yes. I love that. It, it just went like, nah. That's sand as well, where if you touch it, you become sand. We, why, why did it go that kind of left field? Why not? The books, the books were, were much darker than the film. Right. And, uh, okay. Return to Oz, I think, was more, more in keeping with the book, I believe. I bet you could do an, an entire podcast about all of the stuff that went on behind the scenes with Wizard of Oz as well. Yeah. Like the Wicked like is it Margaret Hamilton who played the Wicked, Wicked Witch? That take where she's like, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. And she disappears in a pyrotechnic um, blast. And her makeup caught fire at that point because uh, it was very, very flammable. And they could never get another take of that because she refused to stand close enough to the effect, shockingly. So the take you see in the film is the one where they get to her and they realize she's on fire. Oh, and, there's, yeah, and there's stuff like the Tin Man, the original Tin Man, they used like a particular yeah he uh, got make- sick yeah he got sick because he breathed in aluminium dust 
So you can hear, it's him singing in, when they go, we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. That's the only place they kept him in. And then the replacement actor sang If I Only Had a Heart and everything like that. And they changed the makeup. And I think Adam even alluded to, I think it was when we were doing the Disney, um, the Disney Renaissance one, when we were talking about uh, Tarzan. He mentioned uh, that hanging thing there isn't a munchkin because yeah. there's the urban legend about in one of the shots you can see a, a munchkin hanging in the back. Like it's one of the extras. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't one of the people who had hanged themselves. Is the shot long? Like it looks vaguely like it, but I think the snow. You know, when the snow comes to cure them from the poppies, I'm fairly sure that's asbestos. Oh, nice. That's pure asbestos. Yeah. So add, add that to the litany of reasons that Judy Garland died as like a young adult on top of the amount of chemicals they were giving her in Over the Rainbow to keep her looking and sounding vaguely like a what, 10-year-old girl when she was bought when she did this in her 20s. Yeah. But we all, we all know so much about this film. And yeah. And yeah. Stuff because it is such an iconic slice of mm. American cinema. Yeah. Maybe the most iconic of all time. I remember my grandmother, I, my grandmother was very theatrical and I, I'm not sure that this story is actually true, but she told us that the first film she ever saw in the cinema was The Wizard of Oz. And she told us that while she was sitting there watching it, when the colour happened, it, like the whole cinema just went, <gasps> like this and oh she God. said I thought my world opened up and she, she was so theatrical in the in the description of it but it stuck with me so much that every time I watch it and I must have seen it we must be bordering on 50 times every time I see it when the color like in in the Oz happens when she opens the door of the cabin I, I feel that rush as if I'm my grandma in the cinema although I'm sure it never happened so little tidbit on that so you know when she opens the door that had to be painted a sepia tone and it's not actually Judy Gallen that opens the door because it was a stand-in wearing a dress in a sepia tone because they couldn't figure out how to mix the two. Yeah. So actually Judy Gallen was just ready in her boy dress to step out and it was somebody else that opened the door. Um, it's one that my dad and my sister quite like and that he got it as a present a couple of times growing up in different incarnations. And I'm sure for whatever reason, he played Dorothy once in a school play. Why? I don't know. Why they didn't just get a girl? I don't know. But I've done this show. I did it uh, when I was in... Do Dorothy? Oldham. I wasn't Dorothy. The way they did it was I was with Oldham Theatre Oldham, Oldham Workshop at the time and their base, they were like, um, I think they were based in a, build, a rehearsal space that was next to the gallery, you know, the loaf of bread mm. in Oldham. And we performed this at the Coliseum and all of the main characters, so Dorothy, Scarecrow, Tin Man, Auntie M, you know, all those characters, they were portrayed by actual professional actors. And they got in um, this youth group to do all of like, all of the cameo roles, so like the Munchkins, um, the Jitterbugs, the Snowflakes, the uh, Citizens of the Emerald City, uh, the Winkies, I think they're called, and the flight, like all those little parts. So I was the munchkin there, and I was one of the flying monkeys. And that was great. I loved everything. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> okay, so my number two, finally at number two, uh, is from 2007. A film that all of you said that if you'd watched it, it would have made your list because you've not yet got around to it, is Dreamgirls. Um, so this is directed by Bill Condon, adapted from the 1981 Broadway musical of the same name. And it's basically 
the fictional story, but yeah, it's taken inspiration of Motown, um, the Supremes, things like that, um, of the rise and the evolution of uh, R&B music during the 60s and 70s and through different record labels. It tackles a lot of real-life issues, so things like power abuse, drug abuse, corporate greed, the whitewashing of popular music in the 60s. There's a great sequence in which Eddie Murphy's character, Jimmy Early, um, has sung a song called Cadillac Car, and they release it, and it's really good. It's really upbeat. It's got a like nice soul tone to it, and then all of a sudden, you get a really slow Beach Boys-esque version of it because... Basically, the record label went, oh, that song's really popular. Right, well, we're going to get our white boy band to go and cover it, and they're going to re-release it, and it's going to be really good, and it's going to be better than that. And then you get the fantastic stepping into the bad side set piece after that, where it's like, oh, they've stole our song. Right, so we're going to do it this way, where they can't ever try and copy it again, because it's not going to be the same. And we're going to you know, make a name for ourselves off our own backs and with our own record label. And this has got some fantastic performances in it. Um, one thing that I did went back to my tweets on Eddie Murphy should have won the Oscar for this. Like, you know, little miss sunshine is fine. Alan Arkin is a good actor. He should have won the Oscar for this Eddie Murphy. No doubt about it. And I can understand why he was annoyed when he didn't. Um, Jamie Foxx is great in it. So is Beyonce, Jennifer Hudson and uh, the rest of the cast in there. And basically Eddie Murphy's character is some kind of composite of Jackie Wilson, James Brown, Marvin Gaye. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's one of those where I think we'd watched in the cinema. I went back a couple of times and I was really looking forward to seeing the stage version now that it's touring next year. But with COVID and all that kind of stuff, I was like, do I book it? Do I not book it? Shall we wait? You know, should we, should we do whatever? Um, some selections from the soundtrack, so Fake Your Way to the Top, which is one that's, that kind of kicks us off, um, Stepping Into the Bad Side. Obviously, the big one I'm telling you I'm not going, which is the one that essentially won Jennifer Hudson her Oscar. Um, there's a song called One Night Only, which is in the film quite as like a slow uh, ballad type piece, but the re-released disco version is the one that everybody kind of realizes is a bit more of a banger. Um, and then this was the song, this was the film that gave Beyonce and Listen and her kind of success after that as well. Um, so Ollie, you've not got around to it. I recommend that you give that one a go. I think That's I will. The, bit, the bits I've seen of Eddie Murphy, he looks like he's he's putting in a shift. Oh it yeah, seems, it seems like a proper powerhouse performance from. And I remember because I remember the reason I saw this is because it came up in kind of one of those viral videos. Um, it's apparently a shock to a lot of the modern generations that Eddie Murphy. Um, is, a, is a very, very good singer. And it was clips of him singing Party All The Time uh, with Rick James. And also it was a clip from Dreamgirls. And it's just like, wow, Eddie Murphy looks unreal in this. Yeah. Like, and I think, I think he's getting a bit of a t- return to form as well with uh, Dolomite Is My Name, which I think is something me and Georgia have earmarked as something that we do need to watch. We just need yeah. to find ourselves in the mood to watch it, if that makes sense. The big juxtaposition for that year was that he released Dreamgirls and then released Norbit. And it was just like, what's going on here? Like, you're showing us you can do it. In the same way that Adam Sandler's now playing up, where he shows you can he can act, but then he's going to go off and do something like Jack and Jill, you know? Um, but anyway, yeah, Dreamgirls is my number two. Um, Holly, what's your number two? Um, still in classic mode. It's so interesting how our, our 
lists are really different. I don't think I've watched any of these modern musicals and it's because I have, in my head, I've got such a fixed idea of what a musical is and that isn't a jukebox thing and that isn't a, like a, a real life uh, telling of what a band or a singer has done. I've really got this Hollywood golden age idea of what a musical is and when I look for a musical that's what I'm thinking about. Um, so this one is probably the most critically well-loved classic musical and that's Singing in the Rain. Um, AFI named it as the greatest musical of all time recently and I think they have it at number four for greatest film of all time. Um, I, I think that Singing in the Rain is one of those films that is uh, greater than the sum of its parts. So again, we spoke a little about that with Disney, that some had all the ingredients for a good film, but then it came out flat for some people. I think when I look at the individual elements of Singing in the Rain, it's not that great. Like the chemistry between the two leads is non-existent. In fact, it's well known in Hollywood history that they hated each other. Gene Kelly directed and starred in the film and he was a real taskmaster. Um, he made them do so many takes that some of the actors' feet were bleeding at the end of the dance routines and he still made them continue. So they really hated each other and you can actually see it. Like there's one bit where they're supposed to, suppo he's supposedly seducing his, his love interest and she looks disgusted. <laughs> and it should, it, that should spoil the film, but it doesn't because there's a magic there that is more than more than what's just there on the screen i think the and for me it's the choreography um i'm i'm not that interested in dance i don't really think about choreography when i'm watching a film um i tend to think about character and story as the area that i'm interested in but singing in the rain choreography is just so so brilliant and again gene kelly um choreographed it um in part um and the singing in the rain number um is just beautifully done and and iconic and for very very good reason um make them laugh is my favorite song and the choreography of that is brilliant and frenetic and you can't believe that a human is doing that um all that um in one take kind of deal it's ridiculous um good morning the choreography of that, the three um, main actors standing together and, and dancing. It, it's just gorgeous um, and, and joyful. It's joyful from beginning to end. Um, the story is quite similar to A Star Is Born, but the very, very happy version of it, um, like the completely gutted all of the angst out of A Star Is Born and you've got um, singing in the rain so if no one has if you haven't seen it the storyline is generally that it's at the birth of sound in cinema there are a collection of um, silent movie stars who are finding it difficult to transition to talkies because they were picked for their ability to gurn and overact which is what's needed in the silent era whereas in the spoken cinema era you need a good voice you need to be able to emote with your voice and these actors can't do it and they're struggling and it's about them uh finding a way to uh, make a successful film and and not lose their jobs um essentially but then there's a, a love story and a bit of a villain and and um it, it's it's fun and very uh inconsequential 
but like i said when you watch it it's just so much more than that there's there's magic in every musical number um and yeah it, it, it's a sl another slice of, of cinema history but it's very much revered by people who love musicals and it is very widely thought of to be the best musical that's ever been made yeah i've not seen it um but it is my mother-in-law's either favorite film or favorite musical and a couple of years ago uh mark kermode and simon mayo released a book called the movie doctors and the idea of that is that if you had any kind of ailment they would prescribe you a film that would make you feel better and they did kind of like a spoken word tour following the book around uh, I went to go and see them in Liverpool and I tweeted them beforehand because they were asking for like live audience kind of ailments and things. And I said, I'm just bored. Like I'm, I'm lacking inspiration, whatever it is. And um, they kind of pulled me up on the stage and they showed me a clip of make them laugh. Um, and just said like, if that, if anything's going to make you feel better, it's going to be this sequence and make them laugh. And I couldn't doubt it at all. And I've actually used it since. Um, in my own teaching for um, mise-en-scene when we look at character performance and kind of like body language and expression and things. So yeah, I can't, can't fault them for that. So clearly I need to get around to it. Uh, okay, Ollie, your number two then, please. Uh, it's been mentioned. It ha so we've got another lovely bit of crossover here. Um, my number two is Hairspray. Hairspray was one that uh, Georgia kind of twisted my arm to make me watch because I remember the, fir the first exposure I ever had to this was in a post-high school musical world, I see a musical with Zac Efron in the ad ad advertising and I immediately think, get out of my face, I've got no interest. Then I go to university and all the girls, uh, as one of their girls' numbers in like a cabaret performance that we do, sing Welcome to the 60s. And I think... Okay, that's, that's kind of a fun thing, but yeah, whatever. And then one of the most popular songs that plays uh, whenever Spotify comes on with this group is You Can't Stop the Beat. And it's like, okay, yeah, I've heard this. Okay, fine, whatever. Then I hear about John Travolta being in drag in this particular musical. It's like, okay. And interest is slowly building, and uh, George has seen it before, and I've never seen it. And initially, I'm just like, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to watch it. And eventually... She got me down to, like, I got to the point where I was like, you know what, I'd be actually really up for watching this. It was just after I'd done Grease, and I thought, I'm actually kind of in the mood for this, this kind of story, and I've seen enough about it that I do like to think that I would really like this. Um, so this, was, this is another thing that goes into the top 10 list of, for me of films I refuse to watch until my girlfriend made me, and turns out I love them. Um, because this is Grease, but better in every conceivable way. Every single song, uh, bar a couple, because they're not meant to, every single song is funny. And it just puts a massive smile on your face. I think you hinted at this, Adam. It's a really joyful musical. And it really balances well. Um, having the star power in these roles in the, in the film version with having some incredibly talented actors. The guy who plays Seaweed, I need to find his name. Elijah now. Kelly. Elijah Kelly. Oh my God, his voice. His rendition of Run and Tell That, it has me in because I'm like, I'll never be as good as that. I will never, ever, it doesn't matter how much blood, sweat and tears I put into rehearsing a song in my life, I'm never, gonna, I'm never going to sound as good as Elijah Kelly does 
in this film, particularly with Run and Tell That. His tone, his control, everything he does is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer plays Queen Bee absolutely brilliantly. You know, she gets a great... It's one of the few examples here, actually, funnily enough, where the villain song isn't my favourite song. Um, no, I was going to bring this up when I mentioned it before. Miss Baltimore Crabs. I'm yeah. not a fan at all of that song. I love the song because she sounds bored throughout it and it's like, oh, this is so blasé to I'm me. I'm just doing it because I need to do it. Yeah, but I, I kind of love that that vibe that she brings to it because it's almost like, oh, I don't want to deal with these fat people who think they can get into my beauty pageant. Like, it, 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 it seems informed and... I think Michelle Pfeiffer's doing really well. And when and she proves she can do a good sing a good song when they do the reprise of Big Blonde and Beautiful, which is hysterical because you've got John Travolta giving it cans. By the way, John Travolta's best performance. I'm I'm so I oh, just he's on as Edna, he's absolutely unbelievable. He's the heart and soul of this musical. You, every time Edna gets upset because someone makes a cop because she feels fat or because she feels useless or hideous, you really feel it. It just, it grabs it, it tugs at your heartstrings and yanks them as hard as you can. For someone who's as famous an over-actor as John Travolta, it's, it's a miracle. And his accent is absolutely hysterical. And I remember thinking with his accent, I'm trying to... Or- yeah, Tracy, I'll grab a can of Coke. I'm trying to iron you. I left my iron on. That's that's an authentic accent because there's an interview that I've seen where John Travolta's talking to Oprah and Oprah lived in Baltimore. And she was saying, what I loved in particular was your accent because you nailed it. And it's like there are people who actually sound. And he had to fight for that accent to be in. And he's just hysterical. But the best number has got to be you can't stop the beat as like i can i genuinely cannot think of a better finale song for any musical literally not forgetting film adaptation forgetting like literally any musical on stage anything like that it's the perfect finale because it the vibe is so positive everybody gets their own little solo bit and for it, for it to be such a joyful, happy musical, and for it to then have a song like I Know Where I've Been, mm. which Queen Latifah absolutely knocks out of the park, and it just, you know, it being this slow gospel number that tackles a very heavy subject, like you said, it deals with racial segregation. It doesn't, you know, unlike Greece, and it, fine, Greece doesn't choose, it elects to not deal with subject material that's that heavy in their musical because that but this hairspray is going to tackle segregation head on and you're going to get stuff like that and i think it does chintz over it a little bit you've got a couple too many characters in there who are fine with you know intermingling when they wouldn't have been so what's um forget what james marsden's character is called corny collins he's far too fine with it for it to be a realistic depiction and the townspeople are far too fine uh, with um, Ken. What's in it? With Seaweed's little sister being mm. crowned Miss Baltimore. Miss yeah, Baltimore. Yeah. Like, but you know, how, you know how how the fact that it's had the the nerve to tackle this at all 
in a in a musical and yeah i'm not the best person to talk about representation but i think i think this does i i would argue this does do its part and i think it does have a very important part to play. you know it takes this kind of classic greece style um musical this kind of high school style musical and tackles some really heavy topics along the way and every single every single performance in it is outstanding i think my standout one has got to be seaweed just because his voice is incredible but at the same time john travolta is just adorable and the fact that him and christopher him and christopher walken have such a great duet with timeless to me and it's just ah, oh, I, I absolutely love this music. The only the only thing I'm annoyed with with your selection of it is how low down you put it because I I I remember Georgia had to remind me that this went on because it didn't make my top ten originally, and then she said hairspray. I was like, oh Jesus, yeah, hairspray needs to be on there. I remember putting it on and thinking, okay, yeah, it makes it in at number nine. Oh, actually, no, I prefer it to Rock of Ages, so it goes ahead. Actually, I prefer it to Rocket Man, so it goes ahead. Oh God. Do I prefer? And then I had to decide whether I prefer this to my childhood nostalgia fest of Christmas Carol. And I do. It, despite the fact that I saw it for the first time all the way through, like a few months ago. Yeah. It's had that big an impact on me of, yeah, this is like, this covers everything you'd want a musical to be. It's so, so much fun. And as a film adaptation goes, it's pretty flawless um holly's got a point go on holly oh yeah i was gonna say i i've seen hairspray and i i i don't love it and i think the reason i don't love it is nothing to do with its quality though is instead musicals more than any other genre of film for me are nostalgic which is why i love the old ones so much or if it's not an older musical something a bit quirky like the the horror ones or uh or um once which is like really low budget or book of mormon i I can't think of any mainstream modern musicals that i like and i think that is only because i like i i like the nostalgia of the ones that i've seen give me that but not to veer into a conversation where three white people talk about representation in film (laughs) i do not think that hairspray did hairspray get the same critical backlash as the help got in framing a story about race no. with a white protagonist. Yeah, there's certainly, yeah, there is a problem to be had there. I mean, in, in real life, I imagine there will have been some people who didn't look at the views on segregation but like that is dangerous it's similar to the john smith thing it's like not all the people that colonized you know the americas and were bad like you don't you don't necessarily need that i think there is a valid yeah there is a valid um conversation to be had there i think to clarify if listeners haven't heard the disney podcast Ollie yeah. was being John Smith. We were talking about how how awful the yeah exactly <laughs> rather, rather than white, thinking it was good yeah it's the white savior trope isn't it that, yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I I don't know a lot about it and obviously I'm not in a position to to understand what segregation was like but I, it does make me a tiny bit uncomfortable there's, there's definitely elements that you could argue are part of the white savior trope and it's, it's almost as if. Tracy turns up in detention, sees a black girl and goes, oh my God, you can sing. I like singing too. Let's bring races together. 
uh, yeah, if you put it like that, essentially. Mm. I haven't heard the same backlash to Hairspray as I have for The Help. It didn't get it. So, so maybe yeah. because it, it might be that, you know, it, it's, it is it a musical sensitive way in Hairspray or because it's a musical, it's less mm. um, obvious. Yeah, less. Yeah. Musical, but it's just uh, a tiny bit like... Yeah, just one last quick thing on Hairspray. Um, there's a really nice thing on the DVD or Blu-ray extras, I think, where um, they get Queen Latifah in for her session to record her vocals, and they were all surprised that she nailed You Can't Stop the Beat in one take. Don't be surprised that she can do that. It's oh, are you surprised by that? Did you see her yeah. in Chicago? She's do not she, be surprised by that. She's called Queen Latifah for a reason. Yeah, just <laughs> don't doubt her. On. Um, okay, so number ones then. Ooh. Finally, we're here. We're going to go Holly, Oliver, me. So, Holly, if you want to kick us off. I'm going to get so much stick for this, guys. Oh, dear. I will defend myself. Okay. <laughs> right, actually, I, I expected Oliver to have put Greece as his number one. But then he said that her spray was better than Greece, And I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. Anyway, Holly, go on. Uh, the hills are alive, guys. Oh dear! Oh no! Let <laughs> us speak. So my my grandma makes another appearance in this podcast. Um, this was her favourite film of all time. Uh, it is a family legend that she watched it over a hundred times. Um, at her funeral, we played the soundtrack in, in the church. You know, it's this is a very very big part of my family history. Um, my grandma owned two VHS tapes. One was Oliver, exclamation mark, and one of them was The Sound of Music. Um, and every time we went to her house, like in the summer holidays when my parents were working and they were um, babysitting us, we would watch one of those two, like every day. So I probably watched The Sound of Music 15 times a year, something like that. Um, I, I adore it and I adore it for all of the reasons why I am sure Ollie hates it. Uh, it is corny and sentimental and uh, the songs are cheesy and it tonally doesn't quite work because it's about Nazis, but it's also about fun singing and I don't care. I don't care. Every song is a joy to me. I know every single word. I can say all of the lines in between each song. I Julie Andrews is a goddess and I will listen to her sing anything. I would, I, 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 she sells that film because of course it's schmaltzy and stupid, but nobody could have played Maria and got away with that level of sentimentality and seem like a human being other than other than um her in in my opinion um i think that there is chemistry between her and christopher Plummer. i i really like christopher Plummer, and i know he hated being in it and for a very very long time disavowed the film but has come round to it more recently and now says that he was actually proud of being in something that is so beloved um i i think personally the stakes make sense in the film i i really enjoy the third act where they're they're hiding in the um abbey um from the nazis um i i really like the act that they perform on stage and and the the way um the captain feels about his country and the way he that's portrayed 
through the song um, Edelweiss. Um, I think Edelweiss probably is my favourite song, although the one that I sing most often is I Have Confidence. I really genuinely, anytime I need to do something scary, like I don't like confrontation at all. If I know that I'm going to have a confrontation, like I'm having a, a discussion with a student in detention and I'm on my way in my head without fail I'm singing I have confidence in sunshine as I march up to the room every single time a captain with seven children what's so fearsome about that um and it means it just means so much to me and I know I'm going to get ripped to shreds for saying the sound of music is my favorite musical but it is one of the most meaningful films in my life and I couldn't possibly have a genuine list without it being first so i've not seen it and i don't plan to see it because i just feel like it's going to be something that i'm not going to enjoy i made my partner watch it i regret doing that um, <laughs> okay so, no don't don't watch something you know you're gonna hate yeah i just i look at it and i just think i'm not gonna enjoy that i don't hate it for what it's worth. I, I, it's pure schmaltz, but it's really harmless. And you get what, I mean, the only major criticism I have is that plot point where it's like, oh, well done guys, we've made it into Austria, right into Hitler's backyard, because that's where his private mansion was. Yeah. <laughs> but like at the point where they would have crossed over, that's literally where Hitler's private residence was. But, um, for factual accuracy. Yeah, and but yeah, you have reminded me of something that ha should be in my dishonourable mentions, and that is Oliver, because I can't stand it. I think it's terrible. It's let let's have this incredibly bleak, like because it's one of Dickens's best bleak settings. It's a horrific story in Oliver, and every every single song is "I'm a happy Cockney." Like it's so tone deaf. Like it's, I can't. The only thing I like about the film version of Oliver is uh, Oliver Reed's play portrayal of Bill Sykes. That's frightening. But beyond that, I cannot stand Oliver. Well, then I'm very glad that of, of the two films... I yeah, that's where the hatred goes. Yeah. <laughs> Ollie, give us your number one, because I'm intrigued now. Because I feel like we've kind of ticked our boxes. Unless it's Annie, I don't know what it's going to be. <laughs> you know what it's going to be. Do I? Yes. Oh, no, yeah, I remember now. Right, go on. You know what it's going to be, because unlike you two, I've, like, of course I've included a Disney film as my, as my, as one of my musicals. Holly, and we're going to need an alarm and after uh, about four minutes so we can stop speaking. Yeah, no, make, make it two. <laughs> but, of course, I'm going to include a Disney film in here. And I was really wrestling between, do I pick the one that I think is the best, or do I pick my favourite? Okay. I've picked my favourite. It's Hunchback. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Is put Hunchback my... of Notre Dame is your number one musical. You, you better believe it. All the time. Adam, yes. Just take the recording of this podcast and burn. There is. I remember Hellfire from that. <laughs> what? That's your problem because the rest of the music, again, other than a guy like you, is incredible. Over Hairspray, Over oh, Muppets Christmas Carol, Little Shop of Horrors, Rocket Man, Sweeney Todd, West Side Story. Yeah. Adam, this is redundant because this is my number one music. So if you name a musical, this is better than it. End of. Rent. 
Yeah, better than Ren because okay, getting on to Ren actually. Although I might say, in fact, no, I'm going to save. Don't it. get on to Ren. That. Tell I'm us about I'm going to save that actually. Okay. Do we need it again? <laughs> Look, the music in Hunchback just really makes me feel things. It gets me every single time I hear that opening chorus with the bells and the choir singing in Latin. It is as good an opening as the opening of Lion King for me. It's, it's that emotionally driven. The bells of Notre Dame, I've talked about the last, in the last entry, I talked about it being the best ending, the best finale song. I genuinely think this is the best opener because the music is epic. It's Alan Menken at his finest. It's the, the spirit of Howard Ashman living on in his members, clearly. Because Howard Ashman could have written, could have written the Howard Ashman would have written something this good as well. The inf the information you're getting in that opening song, setting it in Paris, setting the scenes in the streets around Notre Dame, Clopin telling that opening story. You're getting all this expositional information through song, and it's seamless. You learn about your main villain in this same song. He does something despicable in killing Quasimodo's mother. And you're introduced to Quasimodo at the end of this song as well. Then you get, uh, I think the next song is Out There, where you start off with Frollo telling um, Quasimodo that he's a hideous beast and he needs to stay locked away in the tower because he's the only person who will ever care for him. And then, and then Quasimodo's like, I don't care, I just want one day out there. You know, his want, as, as Holly has referred to several times throughout Disney and musical theatre. Um, then we get, uh, as a song, Topsy Turvy, a great fun chorus number that's high, and it's still telling the story of what's going on. And then we get, I think the next song we get is God Help the Outcast. Very overlooked, but a gorgeous song where, as it becomes apparent that everyone else who's in there to pray is after quite selfish things, because they're asking for money, wealth, and for the, their family name to be good. And Asmerelda has the line, I ask for nothing, I can get by, I only pray for those less lucky than I. And it's a gorgeous sentiment. Then we get Heaven's Light, Hellfire, Pinnacle. It, it's musical perfection. I've not heard any other musical where the songs are so intrinsically linked with this embedded psychology of what the characters are feeling at the time. Like none of the songs other than Guy Like You, I, I, I hold my hands up there, none of the other songs feel wasted. And the music, it's not just the songs, the music itself is stunning and informative and thematic and grand and epic. And from start to finish, my jaw is on the floor. Hunchback. So when, I, th I think the next top 10, aside from comedies, which you're not on, because... Mm. I'm not having you shoehorn away into Die Hard being number one or Hunchback of Notre Dame having comedic <laughs> elements into it. The one after that is historically set, which is films that are set in a time period that they weren't made in. Mm. Is it just going to be Hunchback again? No. I'd, I'd, I'm sure I could think... if I Because it's, it's hard to argue that that one's historically set. I think one of the criteria that I would set myself for that is that it's got to be realistic and this it this being disney it's full of that whimsy of are the gargoyles real or not and i i can't quite and it's not an accurate portrayal of 
the area of Paris and Notre Dame at the time, because the idea that a, a single judge would be allowed to burn down all of Paris to find one Romani girl is kind of laughable. But about, about half an hour ago, I remembered that you'd put a Renaissance film as your number one. Mm. And I sat here and I thought, he's not going to have done Lion King because he doesn't like some of the songs in it and he doesn't think it's the best one. He might have done Beauty and the Beast. Surely he's not done Hunchback because we all remember Hellfire. Yeah, right. I'm going to go around in circles. Anyway. Like, to be fair, I was that, it was either going to be that or Beauty and the Beast. And this just, this just does mean more to me. I could have handled Beauty and the Beast. You're going to have to handle this. Right, so what I will say is fair enough. That's your opinion. That's fine. Right. Second thing though is, um, I can't even. Th- I can't remember what the second thing was going to be. I don't even I know why. Broke I'm Adam. No, I'm just going to do my own. Right, Sodger. <laughs> right. My number one is Rent, which I feel like I've already mentioned like four times before we've even got to this point. Um, so the 2005 film directed by Chris Columbus, who once again underrated director, is an adaptation of the 96 Broadway musical of the same name by Jonathan Larson. Um, it features the six orig- or six of the original Broadway cast members reprising their roles, um, depicts the lives of several bohemians and their struggles with sexuality, drugs, paying the rent, and, li- and living under the shadow of AIDS in the East Village of New York between 1989 and 1990. I, this was on my Christmas films list, um, primarily because it's set around Christmas, and I think actually it's got deeper messages of family and who your family are at Christmas, whether it's your friends, whether it's your actual family and all that kind of stuff and survival. This, in terms of musicals, was my way into musicals. This was the first thing that, for whatever reason, I don't even know how I managed to get hold of it or figure it out or find it. I'd just come across either out tonight or another day, listen to them both. And then when I finally got around to watching the film, I was surprised that they went concurrently together in the film. Um, finally watched it, you know, got around to seeing it, a, a version of it on the stage play, but I think it was more like a concert. And weirdly, to kind of marry to a point that Holly made before about her grandma and her grandma's funeral and, song, and Sound of Music, this might sound morbid, but Amy is well aware, and it has been written into my will, that Seasons of Love will be played at my funeral. Um, and I, that is the one, and it's not going to be a kind of, Always on the way in, let's play it then, or always on the way out, let's Do play you, it then. What, so you don't want a dry, a dry eye in the house then? No, of course not. not Everyone's do weeping. Do I egg? Okay. Right? 525,600 minutes, how do you measure a life in, like, in love? Yes, that's it. Wow. It's just going to be a moment where everyone's just stood there and you've got to appreciate it. Um, quick tweet about it, which actually has nothing to do with the actual narrative or anything like that. Um, I was watching The Chase. Um, Natasha Hamilton from Atomic Kitten was in the Rent concert thing that I went to go and watch in November. She was on the chase and she got a question wrong about Rent. And I just thought, (laughs) (laughs) what's the point? What is the point? Um, So some quick song selections. Uh, Again, this was the one that I mentioned earlier. We were having a bit of a discussion about how many we'd written down and I ended up writing the entire soundtrack down. Um, Obviously, Seasons of Love. The titular song "Rent." I think you'll see is a low-key like Benny classic. What? Stop your pointing. You said Hellfire, right? Um, one song, "Glory," I think is another good one. Life support, which is a really short one, but actually go back and give it a listen. Um, Out tonight and another day that I've already mentioned. Santa Fe. Um, Without you, 
um, the absolutely haunting emotion of I'll cover you the reprise, um, what you own, and then Love Heals, which was during the credits. Um, yeah, they're my kind of big hitters. But Rent is that one that's, I think, quite nicely, because it was my lead into musicals, is my favourite film musical. For all the reasons that I mentioned in the Christmas podcast last week, and for all the reasons that I've mentioned, uh, not last week, whenever it went out, um, and all the reasons that I've kind of just gone through now. And yeah, I'm kind of just at the point of ending this because I'm still on a fume about Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> you knew that Edgelord was going to do something crazy. I knew he was going to do something. I thought he had it with Die Hard the musical. Yeah. A uh, couple questions. Oh, go on. Um, do you agree that the vast majority of the characters in Rent are profoundly unlikable and unrelatable? That's I would say... Uh, he's trying to pluck, pluck feathers again, isn't he? Um, <laughs> we've, actually, we said this, Holly, that we were going to start doing hot takes, a separate podcast, and this, so we just argue the toss. <laughs> um, so I would say I think I like Roger, although the whole thing with Another Day is that he's essentially going, yeah, me, me, I like you, but today I've decided I've not done, so I'm going to push you away. Hmm. Mark is quite insufferable at times because he's very pretentious. Collins is the MVP, no doubt about it. I love um, Collins, but his his anarchy shtick can be a bit... Okay. Well, you want everything to be burnt to the ground, okay. I like Angel. Yes, Angel. Yeah. Angel's the only one I can immediately think of. It's like, you're, you're pure, you are fine, everything you do is golden. The one song that is absolutely insufferable on me from the soundtrack is, is it um, Over the Moon? That Maureen oh, yeah, sings. Yeah, yeah. I cannot yeah. do it. Cannot do it. Cannot abide it. I it's just it. no. So one thing that kind of justified because Rent was on my top ten and it was actually pretty high originally because the, the the stuff that I love about Rent I adore. Um, but especially when I when other stuff came to light, I, I found myself trying to justify Rent when I was going to think about how I put it on here and all the things I find as negatives. And the fact is these are all very profound, like they're all so bohemian to the point of it being a massive character flaw. It's like, you, we're expected to feel sorry for these characters who ultimately are pursuing their dreams at the detriment of their own life, of their own lives, because it's like, you're not financially supporting yourselves. You're complaining about having to live in this really poor area and you are doing nothing to financially support yourself. Plenty of people that I know have a dream to become an actor, to become a musician. And it's, I find it genuinely a bit insulting to those people who graft hard and work as a waitress or as a bartender who or whatever. Who do another job. Who go and do another job to supplement what it is they want to do. And you've got Roger absolutely losing his mind at Mark when Mark gets a job um, recording short films for a company oh, it's like, like, oh, like oh you've sold out shut up roger you've not created a song in a year because you're too busy feeling sorry for yourself and like oh you've sold out but i'm paying the rent yeah and it's a very middle-aged take on the this is this is it film and i love it this is since entering 30s yes i thought that as Sally Field's character in Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes, <laughs> yeah. You would have been annoyed. You would have been annoyed if you went to all that. Effort. Right, but I genuinely thought this when I first saw this film at university, and I loved the music. Like, like I said, the songs 
keep me thinking, oh, who cares? It's a musical. But I remember thinking when I first saw it at like 21, these guys are just layabouts. They're so lazy. They really try and portray Benny as they spend so long trying to make Benny out to be the bad guy. Benny should be more aspirational. Yeah. But no, he's the bad guy. You don't want to be yeah. Benny. Benny's the Benny's this horrible prick who sells out his friends. It's like the one thing no. that does still rub me a little bit the wrong way is when Angel admits to killing the dog, and then yeah. they mention it again in La Vie Bohème. Yeah. And, oh, Evita, and it's like you, you're now lauding the fact that you've killed their family dog. Like, yeah, I mean that is played for laughs, yeah. and and the hot the big hot take that I've got around Ren, and it's. It's, a, it's one that I ask about a couple of things like this, and it, it always gets a, ooh, would Ren have the hype around it if Jonathan Larson was still alive? Yeah, because the music is still as great as, as it is. But, yeah, I mean, most of the time I do find, because I remember the more controversial take I had on this uh, was... And it was more from a case of worry because I believed he deserved it. But I was genuinely thinking, would Heath Ledger have been given as much kudos? Because yes. I thought he smashed it out of the park. Yes. But I was worried that yes. a lot of the hype... No, I agree. I 100% agree. But I was worried that not everybody thought like me and you. He genuinely deserved it. I was worried that a lot of people were just getting on a hype train for him. And it's like, would you have loved this as much had he not died? And... Like it was almost like it was almost like this weird gatekeeping on how good that performance was. Like people like me who are fans of Batman and people like you who are fans of Batman, we obviously think that this was arguably the best Joker uh, portrayal we're ever going to see. The Do thing you that, genuinely think that? And the imbalance in that argument is people are still going to rent. They're still yeah. going to the music from Rent, regardless of even knowing who Jonathan Larson's is. True. And I don't I don't think you've got anyone now who say they've found Rent in the last five years and you say to them, Why do you like it? They're not gonna say because I think Jonathan Larson's is so inspirational. I don't mm. think it's got anything to do with obviously it's got a lot to do with him, but I don't think it's got anything to do with him being alive. In this in the same yeah. way, I think Saying Lynn Manuel Miranda died tomorrow, people are still going to go to things like In the Heights and Hamilton, whether he's dead or not. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but like, I, yeah, okay, that's a that's a good point. But that initial, uh, that initial like rocket to fame that it got, would it have got that? Possibly and, not, but at yeah, the same and time, then and then there wouldn't have been as good. There wouldn't have been as much word of mouth about it. So people years later, it might have been. It might not have been the pop culture bastion that it... Because I agree, Rent is one of those things that everyone who loves musical theatre, myself included, loves. Yeah, but at the same time, let's not forget that it had done off-Broadway for an extremely long amount of time. Yeah, true. And it was only, Jonathan Larson only died either the day before or the day of its Broadway premiere. Yeah. So it still got to that point. So there was still the kind of smoke behind it. Yeah. And... Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it is, but it's a fair point to raise and a, a point that we could. Just I think more of an olive branch as well. I think it's fair to say the stuff that I think works in Rent is unbelievable. Yeah, Seasons of Love is arguably like it's the it's you know every like musicals might have a song that is just synonymous with that musical. Yeah. You might call it the theme of the musical. That's one of the best out there. You get an album that is the best of the musicals and you get Seasons of Love on it. You get Defying Gravity on it. Yeah. You get I Dreamed a Dream on it. It's, thing, it's songs like yeah. that, that like 
while the musical itself is so well loved, you get songs that a mainstream audience can go, oh, I've heard this before, yeah, but I might not have heard that song. Yeah, I'd heard Seasons of Love before I even knew what Rent was. And yeah. then I remember that was part of the thing that got, gets you into it. It's like, oh yeah, it's that song. And, it, and they play it a couple, throughout the film, they play it a couple of times. And it's one of the rare circumstances as well where I think the film is far superior to the stage show. I think the stage show is actually kind of clunky and awkward in places. And they do that thing where it's just, we could be talking at this point, but we're going to sing. And it's just, no. Yeah. The film it, the film is like, we'll have some dialogue where we need it. It's fine. To use a word that I don't mean, it's easy. It's not easy to direct a film, but it's, it's easy to kind of pick up where it's been staged on a stage and on Broadway and on West End or whatever, and just kind of mimic that and replicate that. Yeah. Whereas Rent, you get all new different kind of like atmospheres and all that kind of stuff. Mm. yeah okay right to finally end this then because i feel like we've been here all day um as in terms of a joint list we've kind of got as honorable mentions rock of ages um rent and south park because i think me and ollie both regret not putting south Park. yeah 100 percent um and then there's the kind of three that came up on everyone's lists were rocket man hairspray and little shop of horrors Mm. okay so i'm gonna go and watch a little shop of horrors at some point I'd just like to thank Holly and Oliver for another great and varied top 10. I'd like to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'll be back next week with another genre episode, this time looking at the conventions of the comedy genre. You can help support Farrandon Film by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film, and leaving a five-star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, look after each other, and I'll see you next time.